The thing that has enabled us to evolve is that the vision was never, I'm going to sell beauty products on the internet. The vision was, I want my customers to feel empowered and feel confident and fabulous when they walk out the door. Welcome to Scaling Up, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. This podcast aims to tell the stories of great Australian growth companies as told by their founders and CEOs. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com. Hi, I'm Ed Cowan and thanks for joining me on Scaling Up. My guest today is Kate Morris, the founder of Australia's largest online beauty retailer, Adore Beauty. This to me is the quintessential heroic founding tale. It sent tingles down my spine the first time I heard it. In 2001, with online retailing in its infancy, Kate, with only $12,000 in borrowed money in her back pocket, set out with a mission of empowering women to make better beauty decisions. At this point, everything was against her. No experience, no money, no brands wanting to join her platform. Fast forward 20 years, and Adore will this year have over $100 million in revenue, 14,000 products across 200 of the world's biggest beauty brands, and over 160 employees. That is not to say it was always smooth sailing. As you'll hear, this story is one of resilience and belief and grit and hustle. A real founder's story, warts and all. Not much glitz, not much glamour. Until perhaps recently, 19 years after starting, Kate and her business partner finally realised some kind of financial reward, selling 60% of their business to a private equity fund. Kate is passionate about empowering more female founders and makes some really pertinent points in regards to how and why the investment community needs to lift its game in supporting them. This was an incredibly insightful chat, and more than that, it invigorated me. It reminded me, in the world of entrepreneurship, anything is possible. A reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, tell your friends, spread the word. It will just allow more people to help discover it, and hopefully, maybe one day, it might inspire someone to create their own business. Any questions or comments, always email me, hello at tdmgrowth.com. My guest today is Kate Morris, the founder of Adore Beauty, which is Australia's number one online beauty retailer. It was the first online beauty retailer, wasn't it? It was Kate? the first, yes, many, Incredible. many years ago. And now, I mean, you're an e-commerce platform, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And what, what inspires me a lot about uh, founders is hearing the genesis of their story. And sure. I'd love you to... Wind the clock back to 1999, yeah. while many 21-year-olds were probably on the dance floor listening to sure. who knows what, you were... I decided to do something more fun. <laughs> um, yeah, no, look, I was, I was still a student, so I was studying, I did law for a whole week at Monash Uni, and it didn't really take, so I was just kind of floating around in an arts degree, and um, working part-time just to pay the rent, I was working on the Clarins counter. Um, which I, I loved. To me, it was just the funnest job ever, getting to work in beauty. I always loved beauty products. And um, and it was really just the very, very early days of online shopping. Um, and I don't know if any of your listeners will remember, like, you know, D-Store or Wishlist or those mm. those really, really early ones around in that day. And, um, and to me, I guess I'd always seen the way 
so many of you know the customers that I was serving in department stores the way that they felt about that experience and how how awful it was generally considered to be and, and really widely considered to be awful <laughs> like oh yeah yeah it's awful going in there it's it's there's all these scary women with you know too much makeup on trying to kind of jump down your throat and sell you all of these things and um and I thought well that really doesn't make any sense for beauty because the whole point of beauty is that it's supposed to make you feel really good and if the shopping experience is not making you feel that way then something is kind of fundamentally wrong and and to me it was just well it was a no-brainer that someone would do this for beauty that someone would start selling beauty online because I thought oh, there'll be heaps of people that would prefer to shop that way and you know in their own time and without any hard sell and um and I kind of waited for somebody to do it and bored all my friends stupid with talking about it all of the time and um and then in the end uh it was my boyfriend turned around and said to me he said look you know are you, you going to do this or what and I thought oh and it wasn't I'd never considered starting a business before that was not that was not a path in my family um you were supposed to go to uni and get a good job and then do that until you retire so um, yeah, well, I just you know started looking up the yellow pages to try and find someone who could build me a website, which was certainly not as easy as it is now, as everything everything from scratch, and uh, and started approaching all these beauty brands to, you know, get them to give me permission to revolutionise their entire method of distribution, which you know they were understandably fairly reticent to do. I can only imagine. I think it's worth the, giving the context. There's no smartphones. There's no Facebook. Oh. Uh, online shopping was no broadband. I was on dial-up. <laughs> you were using the, the yellow pages to look right. for someone to, to build you, know, a, a website. So That's no Shopify, it. just a oh, plug no. and play. Oh no! So times were tough to even think about. Yeah. Being a, an online retailer. Yes. And, and so. Yes. Yes. Know, it, it, was. it was a slug from there. It was. It was. It was very. Um, you know. It's kind of like you know trying to go into the, the Wild West, like you really you really did have to be a pioneer to try and work out how to even do any of this stuff. Even to, f to try and find a bank that would let you take credit cards yeah. online. Impossible. There was only one. There was one in the whole country that would let you do it. Yeah. Incredible to think. In those early days, how did you build trust with your customers? Amazon had only just really started selling books online, but particularly cosmetics where people want to feel it and, and see it. Yeah. How, how did you connect with those... Uh, customers initially early? Um, it wasn't easy. Um, it was a thing that was it was just a bit of a slog. Um, back then there wasn't, you know, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Instagram, but there was um, Usenet news groups. So there was this one called Alt.Fashion. It was just like all text-based sort of bulletin board kind of thing. And I guess I just kind of hung out there a lot, you know, trying to contribute to conversation, trying to, um, you know, help people out with their, you know, with their skincare questions or their makeup questions, not in a, not in a sort of selling way or anything like that, but it was kind of, it was okay to do that provided you were contributing to the conversation and not just trying to sell products. And so I guess to try and build a little bit of trust that way. Um, there are a lot of things that I tried to do with the website to, you know, to make it very transparent. I mean, a thing that doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but actually like, listing the ingredients of a product and talking about what was in things like that's for the beauty industry that was revolutionary like nobody unheard of to actually 
reduce a product to the components of what was actually in it and talk about what ingredients do what and which things work and it did take a long time and to be honest I mean consumers weren't really ready to embrace online shopping back then so we're actually well look I think the business probably 10 years too early really I'd agree with that so just to sort of fast forward a little bit you've at this stage fallen into entrepreneurship yeah Uh, you've borrowed 20 $12,000 $12,000 from, from $12, your boyfriend's parents? Yes, yes. And the website is up and going. You've convinced two brands. So fast forwarding, sort of seven years, let's say, to yeah. hit the, the million dollar mark. Sure. And then, so slow going. Slow you, you going. It was, I don't know, that's the question I get asked a lot is, you know, what was the moment when you knew it was really all going to work? It was never that moment. Yeah. It was just... Every day you got a couple more sales than you did yesterday and, and just on and on for years. Um, I think, well, let me see, by, yeah, around sort of 2007, 2008, I would have had maybe, I don't know, maybe seven or eight staff, I guess. So, you know, a couple of people packing orders, a couple of people doing customer service and, you know, bit of this and bit of that, but still very, like a very small and you're still a jack of all trades at this moment, are you? A chief yeah, that's mark, right. Marketing officer and probably still picking absolutely, and packing. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the thing you kind of get good at as an entrepreneur is being able to do lots of things a bit good, or you know, In, including good coding. Enough. You helped code the first website. I did. Yeah, I'm not allowed to do that anymore. But um, yes, it was more just as uh, you know, I didn't have any money left over after building my website like I hadn't kind of really thought about the fact that oh well you might actually want to change the home page <laughs> didn't have a content there. management system or anything like that where you could do it so I was just like righty oh I'm gonna have to figure this out borrow a book out of the library yeah. and, and, and now you're dangerous enough to, well you know enough to be be dangerous enough I guess we right know. that's yes I'm not allowed to win anywhere near <laughs> any of that kind of stuff the business is growing another five years till the two million dollar mark. All of a sudden, a little bit of a hockey stick. Three years to get to ten. Another two years to get to thirty. You're building a very yeah. big business at this point in time. Yeah. What were the moments upon reflection, or the decisions that you took that created those step changes? So, the business kind of got to. We got to about three million in revenue by like 2010, 2011, and, but that was the point where it had kind of started to flatten off um, and instead of getting, you know, sort of 50% growth year on year, we were getting like 10% and I just sort of thought to myself, look, is this if this is all this is going to be, then I don't know if I'm really keen to go on with this mm. like I don't I don't just want to run a small business that's you know I mean my boyfriend's parents ran a motel and you know there's a motel it's, it's a good little small business but that wasn't what I wanted and I didn't know how to get it to be more than that and I sort of thought well maybe maybe it's my inexperience you know do I need to go and hire an experienced CEO that knows what they're doing so I was very conscious that I didn't and you know do I is it is this is this just the limit of it and maybe I should just sell it? Like, you know, I'll go do something else. I don't yeah. know. And um, I actually went and saw a business coach, which was probably the best money I ever spent. And she asked me a lot of really good questions. And at the end of the session, she said, look, what I want you to do is to go away and write a letter to yourself from 10 years in the future and, you know, describe your business and what it does and how it works and, you know, your role in it and what your life's like and all this kind of thing. And I thought, well, that sounds like, you know, great. That was a waste of money. 
Um, but I thought, no, 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 I'll go and do, I'll do it, I'll do it. And um, and actually doing that, you know, it's sort of, I guess the process was vision setting, like resetting the vision. All I'd ever really imagined was trying to, you know, build a business and get it to work and I'd achieved that and so I needed to, you know, set a new vision and once I did that, it was like, whoa, all the light's going back on. Yeah. All of a sudden I realised what I needed to do and so it was a lot of the things that I needed to do meant that I was going to have to take some risks with our margin. Mm -hmm. So things like, you know, offering free shipping, you know, we, people were used to that with Strawberry yeah. Net and whatever and we thought, well, look, if, if we're going to compete, we're just going to have to do that um, to try and get to get to the scale where that makes sense. Um, had to completely replatform and rebuild the website. You know, we were stuck on this kind of hulking legacy Frankenstein of a thing that that you know wasn't really going to offer the the kind of the interactive yeah. um, consumer led vision that I knew that we needed to build had to go out and get all of the brands that we were still missing because there was still a lot that were holding back. And I think I'd just, I'd kind of got a bit exhausted of hearing no all the time. And so I guess I'd taken taken my foot off the pedal and I just, I realised, it's like, no, 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 it's got to be done. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, yeah, I have to do it. And look, we needed to relocate to a new warehouse because I knew I couldn't actually drive any further growth in the space that we were in. If all of a sudden, you know, we got a new brand in, I would have nowhere to put it. So all of these things were going to cost money and so remortgaged the house to get the last little bit out of it that I could get um, but had to kind of start on that journey of trying to get the fast growth to be able to attract an investor because no one's going to invest in an e-commerce business that's growing 10% a yeah. year, like that's lame. <laughs> so had to get the hockey stick first to show, sure. you know, to show an investor that we could do it um, but you know, you need the money to do that. And so that was that was really, that was quite terrifying. It's an incredible story to hear. You've bootstrapped this business, you've remortgaged a house, everything's no. on the line. You, you're not making capital allocation decisions with other people's money. This is every no. single every dollar single that cent you I had. had. Yes. You are making a decision about yes. it. Yes, yes. So and no it's marketing backup. or... No backup. There's no, no sense that, oh, well, you know, that's fine. I've still got my little, you know, nest egg put aside or, yep. you know, whatever it was. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no backup. There's no safety net. There's, okay, this is go hard or go home. It's in in incredible <laughs> and mind-blowing, really. It's stupid. <laughs> uh, I guess that has made you very savvy and, and, and you've become an expert in, in probably what I'd call the direct-to-consumer playbook. And, and you've seen it play out over, over 20 years. The market is very different now. There's a lot of software and tools that will play this out for you. But even attracting customers to the top of your funnel before they purchase, before you can even try to retain them and re-engage sure. them, how have you thought strategically over time about that sort of cycle and, and your customer life cycle? Look, I guess the tools that businesses have available to them these days is certainly more than anything I ever had to start out, which I guess is why our, you know, our growth or our liftoff was so slow. And the only way to do it back then was to you know burn heaps of cash, which yeah. I didn't have anyway, so that was fine. That wasn't really an option. Our business got very good very early at 
that really sort of performance-led marketing closer to the bottom of the funnel. So if you were searching for a product that we stocked, guaranteed we would, you know, connect with you at that point because that's the stuff where you get your really good ROI, right? That's where you're getting, you know, 10 times, 11 times, 12 times return on ad spend. Um, And so we, we got very, very good at that. There's a certain point where that becomes challenging to profitably scale um, because you need to start you know to get more volume you need to start moving further up the funnel and I guess that's the point that we've started to get really good at content so creating ways to connect with our consumer before they even know they want to buy something um, you know to to just kind of be part of their journey of learning about beauty or learning about skincare. Um, so things like our, our podcast, which launched only recently and has been incredibly successful. Um, our blog, Beauty IQ, which we've had for, oh, must be three or four years now, but is we've really, I feel like we're really kind of getting into our groove with that and understanding what sort of content our customer is looking for, what they'll find useful, what drives a sale? Because it's all you know. It's one thing to write content that drives eyeballs, but it's, you know, we're still an e-commerce business, and that's how our business model works. So, eyeballs are great, but I need people to buy something at some point. So, um, you know, to to be able to create content that converts is is a big challenge, and I think that's that's where the big evolution is over time. I mean, you still see businesses like um, Amazon, for instance. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, like if you know what you want to buy, then they have it. Um, but, you know, if you rock up there going, hey, I've got really dry skin and I feel like I needed, you know, a new moisturiser or a serum or something, there's nowhere, it, it, they, they can't help you with that. Um, I mean, we've got, you know, a hugely trained staff sitting there on live chat through till, you know, 9, 10pm every night that are completely brand agnostic and not on any kind of sales commission and that they would love to help you with that. That's incredible. <laughs> so part of it's the, you know, the on-site service offering yeah. as well. I mean, it's one thing to drive traffic to the site, but then what do you do with the customer once they get there, particularly if they pitch up in the moisturisers category that's got 900 different products in there, um, to be able to provide the tools and the customizations and the service to help connect people with the product that they're really going to like. And that's why I mentioned at the top of the interview, you have built this e-commerce platform. It's no longer a channel just to, to sell. You. No. You, 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 you've gone full platform, and I think in this day and age, that's a must. Yeah, I think you end up being kind of almost like an integrated media business, but instead of selling the page views, it's, well, the mm. point of driving the people there in the end is to help connect them to the products that they're going to love um, and I think that's really what makes sense and and for the beauty industry that's that's actually where the big disruption is because previously the way that the industry worked is that well the big brands would advertise in the magazines and hope that at some point that would drive a person into the store up to a particular counter to go and, and consider the product but it's not a very consumer-centric way of doing things. It doesn't really help the consumer to, I mean, armed with a Vogue magazine and, you know, the beauty hall of David Jones, how are you supposed to find the best combination of skincare products for your skin? It's not the information that you need isn't there. Yeah. Just listening to you talk about that, you've built such a durable business and your competitive advantage would have shifted over time. I sure. mean, initially it was convenience. Well, it was initially the fact that we sold online and everybody else didn't, that's and obviously a, that's, exactly that's not... Right. <laughs> and, and now it's shifting again, and you probably as a, as a founder need to be thinking, what does my competitive advantage look five years from now? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think 
the thing that has enabled us to evolve is that the vision was never, I'm going to sell beauty products on the internet. The vision was, I want my customers to feel empowered and feel confident and fabulous when they walk out the door every morning. And so it becomes less than about what the channel is or, or about how you do it. It's, it's, you know, what feeling do you want your customers mm. to have? You know, do you, one of the things that I often talk about is that most women still have this kind of beauty graveyard of products under the sink that they've bought and they're like, yeah, someone talked me into buying this and it's not that great or it doesn't work for me and it's, but you can't throw it out because it was expensive. And so it just kind of lives there under the sink and makes you feel guilty every time you see it, right? And so for us, while that beauty graveyard still exists and we feel like we still have work to do and how we do it then can obviously evolve over time as the technology changes and as the tools change. Was that the mission day one? Day one. And it yeah. still holds today. It's actually, I found my original business plan, such as it was, it was pretty, it was pretty rough. And, you know, the reason for doing it is still exactly the same, which really surprised me um, because obviously it's, you know, it's so long ago, I can't remember what was in my head at the start of that, but it, it <laughs> I was really quite surprised and pleased to see that, you know, that vision is one that you know held true then and holds true now and that's that's you know you know it's your north star really it's it's probably got you out of bed on a few days when you didn't feel like it oh absolutely and then when you you know you get lovely emails and things from customers going you know what i i I listen to your podcast it's fantastic i feel like it's you know i feel like i'm talking with my best friends and i feel like i'm learning so much and i mean that's that's tremendous that's tremendous that's what we're doing at You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. TDM Growth Partners is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing private and public companies. TDM Growth Partners, investing in and helping build businesses we are proud of. If you are looking to the future and the omni-channel retailer is now becoming more present, the bricks and mortars have started to really work out that sure. online is where it's at and sure. traditionally you were almost their digital arm. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about how your business will evolve in, in the next five, ten years? Look, for me, I think it's it's still about keeping the, the consumer promise at the front of your mind and whatever ends up being the best way to do that is is how we'll go about it. So it's it's less about kind of pinning ourselves to being an online retailer. It's more about what is the best way for us to continue to deliver that to our customers. Um, I actually feel like the online channel offers so much that's really hard to get in a mm. store. Um, I mean, the amount of data that we have to be able to kind of personalise and curate the individual consumer experience online. I feel like every time you go into a store, your journey is really restricted by, you know, how well-trained or educated is that single person that's serving you, Um, whereas we have, you know, sort of 19 years' worth Mm. of consumer data and 19 years' worth of all of the, you know, everybody who's ever worked here's knowledge um, about all of the different products that we have, and it's I feel like that's that's such a hard thing to actually do in a store. It does feel like artificial intelligence will create this great 
personalization experience for your customers? I think so. I think so. And look, I do still see the store channel or the professional channels as kind of being symbiotic with with what we're doing online. I mean, we can't, you know, one of the things we can't do online is we can't give somebody a facial, you know, <laughs> we can't give them laser treatment. We can't Not cut yet. their hair. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. No, well, that's right. Yeah. Not with that attitude. <laughs> um so, look, there's always, there's always going to be things that they, they can't necessarily get from the online channel, but I think, I think there's a lot more room to grow where we are. No doubt. Uh, one thread I do want to go into, I know that you are heavily values-driven and this business is deeply rooted in, in values. Mm-hmm. How has the culture of this business scaled over time? It was yeah. obviously you and your partner who started the business. Yeah two of you, all of a sudden there's six, there's ten, now there's yeah. 130 across warehouses, yeah, across head office. Now. It's yeah. about 175 soon. Yeah, that was a piece of work that we did, I'm trying to work out exactly what year it was, but there was a year where we went from 12 employees to about 25, and that was a year that everything broke, and we made a couple of hasty hires and there ended up being some personality clashes in the office that just made it a really horrible and kind of toxic place to work for about six months, which is which is an awful thing, right? For particularly because it had always been such a lovely and positive place, and um, you know, and it, it, to me, it had always felt like family. And for it to not feel like that mm. was just horrendous. And anyway, it sort of it ended badly, and few people left the company. And I guess those of us that were left kind of sat down together and went, right, none of us ever want this to happen again. Um, how can we avoid that happening again? And so we all work together on putting putting together a list of cultural values, which basically represented, okay, when things are great here, when things are going really well, what behaviours are we seeing? Um, what are the what are the sort of consistent threads of the things that make it good to be here or make this a good company or you know or I mean and a high performing company yeah. as well. And to work together on that list of values that we then have ever since used as sort of the fundamental pieces of, of recruitment, um, of performance management. If you ask anybody here, we'd, you know, we'd bang on about the values all of the time because we expect everybody to be able to use those, those key values as decision-making tools yeah, on a day-to-day basis yeah. so they they relate back to everything so one of the core ones is um doing the right thing and that means doing the right thing by by our customers by our suppliers and by each other here in the workplace um, and the way that that manifests is for instance okay well let's say accounts team oh we're a bit you know a bit tight on cash flow um which you know certainly happened during the many <laughs> years that we've tried to scale up you know, oh, we'll just, we'll just push our payments out by a week. Um, and that's not the way that we would mm. do things here. It's like, okay, well, if you need to pay somebody late or you need to ask for an extension, then you phone them up and you ask. Everybody else has bills to pay too, and so, so you, would, you would never do things that way. Um, you know, owning up to your mistakes and it being okay also to make mistakes, to say, hey, yeah, I, I'm really sorry. I didn't handle that very well. I would like to have done it better. I'm really sorry. You know, just things like that, you know, just being honest. Basic, you know, your supply integrity. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and with our customers, like if we've done yeah. the wrong thing by them and we've let them down, we will make it up to them. Hey, we promised you we would ship your order by three o'clock today and we haven't been able to do that, so we're really sorry. Here's, you know, ten dollar 
store credit your order is going to be a day late. I hope that's okay. So many retailers just don't even do that. It's just living up to your promises. And all of these kinds of areas, um, you know, these key cultural values is I think what has enabled us to scale from 25 people through to, well, yeah, 160 odd um, without the wheels falling off. And it also gives you a really good tool, you know, if there's any highs where you, you're sort of going, oh, you know, there's some seeing some, some behaviours. You know, it gives you a tool to have actually have that conversation. Yeah. You know, hey, actually, one of our core values is having a positive approach. Do you think that, you know, you were making generous assumptions in that in that instance? Do you think that you came with solutions and not with just problems? Um, all that kind of stuff. It seems like you invested ahead of the curve in, in a sense in that values proposition because so many founders that I've been lucky enough to deal with, it becomes an issue at 300 people and then it can really it accelerate be, the business. Right. At, at uh, look, 20, it, it felt like you, you saw the light early the little red flag and, and, you, and you fixed it. Yeah, it felt like a big red flag at the time. But um, yeah, I, get, I think in every business, like it comes for every business. If you don't work it out, you're going to have to work it out at mm. some point. It's not a thing that you can put off forever or go, okay, I oh, know we don't, we don't need to do that. Or, or we've written some values and they're on the wall somewhere. You know, just you can't. You, you, this is this is a bill that you have to pay at some point. Absolutely, I love your mental model of having values at the centre. Culture sort of sits around that as a living, breathing organism that will move regardless of of what you can do. Sometimes as CEO, but if the decisions and the behaviours are being driven by those values, that culture will move in the right direction. Correct. Yes. Uh, that, look, that's. That's been my experience so far, but hey, you know, maybe ask me again when we get to 300 people. <laughs> While we're on culture and values, I'd love to peel back a layer to your work-life balance. So oh, you, yeah. you co-founded the business with your partner, yes. and you've now co-founded a family with your partner, yes. <laughs> which yes. is probably yes. just as great achievement as, as this incredible business. But yeah. how has that relationship been managed over 20 years of the business, uh, obviously stressful times. Um. Look, I, I think we've always generally found it less stressful to sort of have each other to lean on. Um, I think we're very lucky that, you know, I mean, we. I, I talk to a lot of people who are like, oh gosh, you know, I could never could never work with my partner. We would kill each other. I was like, really? How do you parent? Like, mm, must be really... yeah. <laughs> like if you can parent, you can you can run a business together because you have to respect that. You have to respect that each person, you know, has maybe slightly different ideas about things. But provided that you're on the same page in terms of you know what your what your goals are and what your values are, then you know the small differences of opinion stay relatively small. Um, you know, if you've got someone that you're values aligned with and there's generally not any major issues and I think one of the things that benefited us early on was to sort of delineate which areas were which person's responsibility so we weren't stepping on each other's toes all the time for instance it's a it's a PR decision that's my decision Um, and you know he can absolutely have input into that but in the end it's my call Um, so you know just to sort of divide up those areas so that you're not challenging each other all the time. And what about the overlay of, of bringing up a family together yeah. as well while scaling a business, you know, oh. dramatically? Look, there were challenging times. I won't say that there weren't, particularly when, you know, you're sort of trying to not let the business go broke and then also yeah. wrangling a two-year-old. That's 
fun. It doesn't really feel like there's a lot of breaks sometimes. <laughs> um, but look, I guess the, on the upside, it, it has allowed us to arrange, you know, our parenting arrangements however we want, mm. um, and to model that too for the other for the other team members. Like that's actually been that's actually been a really positive thing. So we decided, for, you know, always from the get go that we wanted it to be fifty fifty on the parenting front. You know, aside from the fact that men find it difficult generally to actually, you know, gestate, <laughs> that was something that I did have to do. But, um, but then after that, you know, I think I had well, with the first kid maybe six weeks mat leave. Um, with the second one, I had three, and then after that, we split it, and we did. We live near the office, and we just did half days. So I'd go in and work in the mornings, and then switch over at lunchtime, and go in in the afternoons, and. Um, meant that we both got to have a shot at doing both and um, I think it's kind of worked out really well. There aren't enough female founders in the world and I know you're inspired to ensure that there are more in the future. What advice would you give to a female founder who did want it all, did want a family, did want a, a great business? My advice is that, I mean, it can absolutely be done. You will have to probably challenge other people's preconceptions mm. of how it should be done. But who uses stuff what everybody else thinks, right? So um, I think, honestly, the biggest thing that you can do is to decide to, <laughs> to, to build a family with someone that generally has your back and wants you to succeed in your career and wants to do half of it. Otherwise, you know what, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. What are the friction points for female founders? So I, I work with and, and mentor quite a few and um, I see there are challenges with confidence because a lot of people equate confidence with competence and they're not necessarily the same thing but I think women get conditioned kind of their whole lives to actually not be too overtly confident or, you know, there are generally negative consequences. So speaking as someone who got fired from half the jobs I had before I started my own business, it's just, you know, if you're a confident woman, it doesn't generally work out well for you from a career perspective or often doesn't. I see them often with lesser or, you know, smaller or, or lesser quality networks. I get so many male founders introduced to me by other males who you know they just they have this habit of, mm. of you know extending their networks and and helping people out and um, women don't get the benefit of that often so they have to do it they have to do everything themselves like I found you know female founders to succeed have to be extraordinary mm. um, I mean the access to funding is also really challenging because I find too female founders will often start a business accidentally, I guess, as I did, because they want to solve a problem. They have a problem in their own lives or a problem that they see with their friends that they want to solve. And it's not necessarily often sort of, a, you know, a sexy tech business that the VCs are crawling all over themselves for. And so there ends up being this really big funding gap, particularly between, you know, you can get kind of like a little bit of angel money maybe, but once you get to the point where you need, you know, a million dollars or $2 million, if you have a business that is a product business or a consumer business, where are you going to get that money? That's it's right. really hard. Yeah. It's fine once you get up to, like, private equity is not, not so bad, you know. If you need $10 million or $20 million, yeah. you can get that. You've got a $50 million business by that stage. Correct, <laughs> yes. But um, in the, the VC sort of sort of funding round for, for consumer or product-led businesses, there's a real gap. Yeah, yeah. And, and hopefully that's moving in the right direction. There are so many great women in VC now. 
that are I think are trying to solve this problem that maybe this generation of female founders might have a better than the last? Yeah, maybe. I think we probably need to see a bit more of a fundamental shift in sort of the VC business model because it really is built around placing a lot of small bets hoping that one of them ends up being a unicorn and I mean there's nobody sort of investing in businesses going hey well this right now it's a five million dollar business but we think it could be a hundred million dollar business like for VC they'd be like man that's not enough so that's there's a difference in thinking I think required there. That's an interesting point. Yeah. You mentioned that you you wrote a letter to the business coach suggested that you write this letter to yourself in 10 years time to have this vision of what your business would become. Mm -hmm. What would Kate Morris write to her 20 year old self now for advice? You know, I don't actually regret any of the mistakes that I made because I feel like all of them added up to where I am now and I feel like where I am now is actually pretty great. So I don't know. I don't know if I'd give me any hints. Maybe you just have to, you know, maybe it's just a journey and you've just got to go through it. Um, I think obviously there's a lot that I've learned that I would do differently next time. And I mean, I think the timing thing is, is the biggest thing. I think the thing that I probably didn't understand back then is how not ready the market was for this. And that if you're going to be the very first one to do something, like it's going to be a slog. It's going to be a slog. And there's no... There was no way of speeding it up, I don't think. And the businesses that tried to do that, you know, to raise a lot of money to try and speed things up, they just burned through all the cash because it's still, the market wasn't ready. So the, the timing's the kicker, I think. It might have been just big block letters, keep it going, Kate. Just, <laughs> just hang in there. Yeah. Incredible <laughs> resilience uh, when sitting on the other side of the table here to hear your story, to, yeah. uh, to show that belief and resilience is, is rare. Um, I don't know that it is. I don't know that it is. I see so many founders with it who, you know, who slog it through all the really hard years and it's not necessarily the bit that you read about. Um, you know, everybody likes the sort of overnight success aspect and I think I think the slog is, is the, really the making of, mm. of any entrepreneur. Um, I think anyone. That's it. That's it. To Regardless. really, to have a vision and to really give it everything... Yep. Um, for however many years it takes. I was having dinner with a couple of my mentees last night, actually, and um, I just said to them, I said, look, you know, here's to, here's to another year that we all survived, um, and next year will be even better. But, you know, to pay my kind of respects to them, because I said, you know, nobody who hasn't done this, who hasn't been a founder and started from scratch nobody will ever understand what you've put into this Mm. it's you give it everything amazing yeah one last question as a true high performer i'm always interested in how you recharge your mental health battery where where do you get time for yourself in amongst two kids a partner a business yeah um, you have to make time for it. You kind of have to schedule it in. So, like exercise, for instance, it's definitely a scheduled thing. Yeah. It's not just oh, I'll go to the gym when I have time because otherwise then you never have time. So it's it's a scheduled thing. Um, I do love taking myself to the movies. That's kind of my favourite thing because it's like okay, you get to pick the movie, and for the next two hours, you don't have to talk to anybody. Nobody can call you. Nobody can text you. Nobody can email you. You get to actually just sort of fully be present and engage with something with no distractions. Um, and that's always that's always heaven. I kind of wish that flights didn't have Wi-Fi 
anymore. I mean, it's good, it's handy, you know, you can get stuff done, but also it used to be a really nice time for just kind of sitting there and zoning out because you couldn't do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed uh, Bruce Buchanan who said his time out was to fly, and I thought, oh, but with Wi-Fi now on flights, he said, no, it's... I, I fly, as in I fly the plane. It's the only time I can disconnect. Oh, well, you kind of have to concentrate. <laughs> because if for I'm that. not concentrating, I die. For sure, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You do have to carve out those moments, even if they're just little moments. And you know, my partner and I try and do that for each other. Um, you know, on the weekend, where it's like, hey, I'm just, I'm gonna go and sneak upstairs to my bedroom and just close the door and read for half an hour. And he'll be like, okay, great, go. I'll put a movie on for the kids. So <laughs> you just got to carve out those little moments, even if they're not very long. Amazing. Kate Morris, thank you so much for being on the show. You're an incredible inspiration to me and, and many others and uh, really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome, Ed. <laughs>